Okay, uh, welcome everybody. It's a little bit past three o'clock uh, on this uh, nice Friday afternoon. Um, the highlight of the week, as our guest just told us, to uh, to talk a little bit about research. Uh, today we have a distinguished guest from uh, from the United Kingdom, uh, Dr. Teresa Capellos, who's an associate professor in political psychology uh, at um, University of Birmingham. Um, she uh, has uh, been trained at the stronghold of political psychology uh, uh, in Stony Brook, uh, Stony Brook University, uh, has uh, made uh, foundational contributions to our understandings of politics, uh, once focusing on things like emotions and have been uh, a big inspiration for us uh, here in Amsterdam. And she's also uh, the president-elect of uh, the uh, International Society of Political Psychology, which many of us would probably call our intellectual home. Um, we are very honored, Teresa, that you found the time in your busy schedule uh, to make time for us to share some of your work. Uh, therefore, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to open the floor for you. Uh, those of you who are new here today, um, if you want to ask a question to Teresa, if you're online, uh, you can type it in the Q&A. And once the time comes, Kai Schumacher will um, read the questions out loud and Teresa will answer. So that's it. Teresa, the floor is yours. Thank you for being here. Christian, thank you um, for this really generous, I think, opening uh, and introduction. Um, I am I'm, I'm very happy to be there. As I was telling you earlier, it's it's uh, the highlight of my week, taking a little bit of break from all the other things that we do to think about uh, the research that we love and that makes us tick. Um, and it becomes even more exciting, I think, if this is done in front of an audience that that understands the work, appreciates the work, but also expands the work. Um, so um, I am looking forward to your questions, your suggestions for improvement, your criticisms, but with a little bit of caveat. The paper that uh, I wanted to present to you today a couple of months ago was under review, but um, only a couple of days ago we got the really good news that is accepted. So um, you'll be able to read the final version of this in print. And because now we just have a few more opportunities to just tweak it before we send it off, anything you say could be part of the paper. So um, looking forward to, to, to your input as well um, as an improvement. So um, let me share my screen. I think I can do that already. Here we are. Um, And slideshow, there we go, right? Okay, so um, for those of you that were at ECPR in Innsbruck a few months ago, this might look familiar. Um, it is, I haven't changed the presentation. It is basically uh, the, the same paper, the same work, which back then we revised a little further. Um, the purpose of this paper or the broader project that it sits in is to um, put a question mark behind the big debates we've been having, many of you in the room and, um, and people who are joining us online and us as well, on um, emotionality in politics and particularly anger. What does anger look like? What does anger feel like? How is it expressed? outwardly the kind of pro-social or anti-social outcomes that we see with anger, how can we understand it? And political realities, better or worse, have given us a lot of opportunities to experience, study, measure, 
um, anger without even manipulating it in experimental contests, uh, contexts. And, um, but it left some of us with, with a big question mark that what we have been writing about and labeling as anger is actually a mislabeling of anger. And that's what I'm here to talk to you today about. That's why the title of the paper is called Anger Issues and the subtitle points to the grievance politics content context in which we are understanding anger, but also resentiment as, a, as an alternative complex emotional experience that um, I will try to show you, I think captures a little bit better, a little bit closer, the particular anger that me and many other colleagues um, have been looking at um, the past few years. So it starts with a mea culpa because when I first published about emotions in politics a good like 20 years ago, I was labeling this anger too. Um, maybe because back then it was closer to the forms of anger we were used to um, in the early 2000s and uh, the, the 2010s part of the story. But um, I will try to convince you perhaps or get you to be puzzled a little bit about this, this other type of anger that many of us, um, perhaps because it's easier, because we are all used to be thinking of anger as, as anger, um, also because we are only used to operate in a very narrow framework of political emotionality where we talk about aversive affect, anger versus um, anxiety, anxious affect, i.e. fear. Many of us have been narrowing our vocabulary to two emotions, anger and fear, and we just try to fit everything we see in those two boxes. And I think inevitably we make mistakes that we should not be making given our deep theoretical insights and our specialization. So, um, this is for me acknowledging responsibility for wanting to be theoretically sound and empirically appropriate when we try to understand grievance politics. So this is a quote from one of the books that I will be uh, using as part of our data set today. Um, and it basically highlights the intense amount of anger and frustration and grievance that is part of this political reality um, that that I'm interested in unpacking a little bit comes from Paludi's book called Stift, The Roots of Modern Male Rage. And that brings us nicely to the puzzle that I want to unpick today. This puzzle is this idea of the angry citizen. Many of us, um, and I talk among academics, so you can relate to that. We have been giving interviews to, um, to the media, to other colleagues. Um, we have been thinking and writing about angry citizens who, um, are vengeful, who are polarized, who either promote or become part of these uncompromising positions, antagonisms, anti-positions. And we all label them anger, angry. We identify their emotional experience as anger and we move on to talk about the implications of anger for electoral politics, for populism, for political leadership, for values, um, and all um, the dependent variables that we we are interested in. So instead, I think, um, of the simple anger that we, again, in the context of political psychology would like to acknowledge as anger, what we see is a more longstanding, a more bitter, a more disengaged and vengeful political stance that does not fit the conceptualization 
in psychology, the empirical approximations of anger, but instead is mislabeled, I think, in the way we, we identify it and we operationalize it. So the concept that I offer as alternative, and I wanted to put it up front-loaded for you so we can unpack it together, is this concept of resentment. It's not a pretentious way of talking about resentment. Um, it, resentment and resentment are different terms. They uh, map to different psychological phenomena. Uh, resentment is an emotional mechanism, or some of the colleagues call it a complex emotional experience, but it's not a clear emotional uh, emotion uh, per se. It has, a, it's a mechanism because it has a process. It takes gr grievances that we identify as deprivation, frustration, humiliation, lack of political e efficacy. It comes from a very suppressed and inefficacious space, mental space, and changes them. That's why it's a mechanism because it transmutes them to righteous indignation, that's what most of us would acknowledge as resentment, the pure and proper resentment, distractive anger, hatred, and rage. So there's a process here by which emotions go in one way and the same inefficacious anger and pop out of resentment in a process of transvaluation and uh, modification into righteous indignation, destructive anger, hatred, and rage. Now, what's interesting with this resentmentful mechanism is that you don't need an, another agent or the additional input for this mechanism to kick in. Once the mechanism is at work, you put in envy, shame, and efficacious anger, and you get these antisocial outputs on the other side of it, which are not the same as an experience to what you would consider angry. So how can we disentangle resentment from anger proper, pure anger? That was the biggest, the big question of, of the project, which involves this paper I will talk to you about today, but also a few others. So first, let's put anger and resentment against each other. As political psychologists, we know that we want to look at its properties. Yeah. So one of the interesting insights that we get when we look at angry politics research, the research that many of us do, is that there are deeper psychological dynamics of aggression that is kept down, is repressed. Yeah, and But we also know that lots of the measurements that we are using as we are engaging with these, um, just look at the surface. Very often we just ask people if they're angry or afraid. Now, there is a problem with the self-reports because they are also socially constructed there are those of us who study emotionology. We know that there are certain emotions that all of us admit to in particular context, societal context, personal context, and some other emotions that we wouldn't easily admit or easily be aware of. Uh, the mislabeling of emotions or the labeling of emotions, however you want to call it, is very often socially constructed and imposed. So people can be feeling things they don't know what to call them, but easily can call them anger when somebody else tells them you fit the anger profile, you're angry, so they adopt the label. Sometimes it's an easy also answer, how do you feel, oh, I feel angry, than trying to dig a little deeper to the contents of your emotion, particularly if it's a painful one associated with envy, shame, and inefficacious anger. So there are intricacies there about how we need to be sensitive to the material around us and alert. And I think the best way to do it is to stay true to theoretical insights 
and empirical measurements that highlight what is anger proper and what is resentiment as, as, as an emotional, complex emotional experience, and then put them against each other and see whether the things that we observe out in the real world map onto one or the other. This is the approach that I'm taking here today. Yeah, so the focus is grievance politics. We study resentiment not 20 years ago, 50 years ago, but now in a, a particular very heightened context where within populist debates, we see bitter nostalgia, we see a lot of rumination, we know the anti-politics, the anti-stances, as we call them, and victimological perspective. This is a claim, claims of self-victimhood where you see even dominant groups in society uh, saying, I'm, I'm the victim. And this is really, really interesting, again, within the content of, of the discussions of resentiment, because victimhood is the axis of resentiment. But that's for another talk. I'll come back, uh, invite me back, and, and I'll tell you uh, more about that, that project on victimhood. So going back. Um, just to refresh our memory, or for those of you who want to investigate anger a little um, deeper, maybe that's, that's a good starting point. So anger is a basic emotion. It's acute. It has a momentary effect. It's in the now. It comes from particular appraisals, uh, cognitive psychologists tell us, um, about things that are not in our control, but are assessed, appraised as an abstraction or infringement to something that we want to get to, to satisfy a need, a goal that we want to reach. So if we if we feel obstructed, we get angry. It's, an, it's a natural response to external, social, um, and or political stimuli. stimuli. Um, and it does things to us. Our body changes when we're angry. It's not just a mental state that leaves our body um, unaffected. When we are angry, <clears throat> There are changes in our mental readiness that prepare us to act. Then back in, um, about, I don't know, 10 years ago, I was writing about that um, and many, many others. It increases our activity in the brain. Cognitive neuroscience studies show us that are linked to uh, fight, so approaching um, the offensive stimulus, whatever that is. And it also increases our tendency to, to attack without uh, engaging our very um, systematic uh, cognitive processing, so without deliberation very much. So we are prone to act, not much to think or to, to talk. Um, unlike fear, and there's a lot of studies that contrast anger and fear, so you're probably familiar with, with the differences between them. So what are the things does anger do? When we look at it um, in relation to political objects, it's usually associated with negative uh, reactive orientation, so negative anti-stances, but also optimistic risk estimates that's linked to your desire for movement to, to go and do things. So you think, you think your risk is not as high. Um, Outgroup aggression, so antisocial uh, expressions of anger, discontent and desire to punish. And there's fantastic scholars who have been doing work um, here that I can send you references. The reference list is long on this one. Um, and it's also considered not a bad thing to have. It is a healthy and appropriate response to, to realities because if something is unjust, if something is unfair, you want to get angry, you want to get it out there. Passivity in um, unfair context is not a very pro-social outcome. So we don't want to uh, keep anger down. That's not the point of this work. We want to understand it, appreciate it, and see it for what it is. Um, what is resentiment? It's not anger. So resentiment is not a temporary reaction. It's a chronic, 
compensatory emotional mechanism. I told you about the mechanism before because it has a changing process. Things go in, different things go out. And you don't see this usually with emotions. Emotions are what you see at the beginning and at the output. Um, it's in certain places where you would find resentment. You look among disprivileged um, individuals, those that perceive the, the situation as being um, compromising them. It doesn't have to be compromising them in reality, but it's the self-perception that matters, right? So it's the fantasy, the, the imagination, the perception that matters here. If you want to think about this in the context of a popular story, think of Rizentimar as the fable of the fox and the sour grapes. Um, you might remember that from Aesop and as Greek, that resonates really well to me from my early age. There is a fox. How many of you in the room know about this? Hands? Okay, let, let's go through it. So there's a fox, it walks in a meadow, it sees those grapes, they're hanging off, um, off, off the vine. The fox tries to grab, jumps to reach the grapes, fails, jumps again, fails, jumps again, fails. And every failure comes with more pain, more disappointment, more frustration, and the fox keeps jumping and keeps failing. So the fox keeps coming with excuses about why. It's the floor that is slippery, my legs are too short, the, the the grapes are too high. Eventually, the fox stops jumping anymore. It's too frustrated to jump and devalues the grapes, says those grapes are not sweet. I don't want them anymore. And I'm better off walking away. I'm not a loser anymore who was trying to get those grapes. I am better off without them. I don't need them. And so devalues the grapes, reevaluates the self from a loser image to somebody who is a morally righteous victim and walks away. Right? So this is the context in which you see resentment. It is a situation where somebody keeps trying, doesn't have access to resources that they need or to the rewards that they want. They feel constantly um, devalued, uh, compromised, and these repeated frustrations trigger resentment. And the outcome of resentment is that walking away, that devaluation. The process of devaluation is a clear characteristic of resentment. And we call it transvaluation, the change of values. Right. What is there's a lot of work on resentment that comes from political theory, political sociology, um, um, uh, philosophy of the mind. Um, and, and my co-author here, Miko Salmela, is is one of those mind philosophers who has been working for a really long time on resentment, and I learned a lot from Miko. Um, what he taught me is that resentment is driven by particular emotions. The things that feed it is shame, envy, and inefficacious anger. Yeah? Um, you can imagine the fox trying to, do, to, to jump for the grapes and failing. And it comes with this powerlessness and that sense of inferiority. I'm not good enough. Somebody else has been getting my grapes or somebody else can't get my grapes. What happens with resentment? As a process, if you look at it deeper, for those of you comfortable or willing to be comfortable with psychoanalysis, not everybody wants to or should be, um, it involves idiosyncratic defenses. They have to do with how strong your ego, your sense of self is, uh, or as we say, your self-concept to withstand fighting. But defenses, in a way, are natural mechanisms that give us a little bit more mental health. Um, but these defenses, and we'll talk about defenses in a little bit, uh, allow us to maintain a sense, a, a kind of like a healthier sense of self than completely giving up um, through the transvaluation of who we are. 
from uh, inefficacious victims to morally righteous victims. And our values from the things that we valued highly in this box is a very easy value. I want the grapes. I value the grapes positively to re-evaluating and now valuing the grapes negatively right? and valuing the self from negative to positive. So you see how the values change. The values uh, we assign to things. What happens after or after the resentment process is at work, you see at the other end resentment, indignation, hatred, um, which is reinforced through social sharing. That's the last stage of resentment where individuals don't just hang out with themselves, but they hang out with other foxes that have the same experiences and they all ditch the grapes together. Um, so that revalidates the dispositions, the values of resentment. It is different from resentment, and that's important because resentment is a clear emotion that is a moral anger, unfairness. It doesn't have a mechanism attached. There's nothing in resentment that goes in and comes out different. Yeah. And resentment has the ability to act, whereas resentment is inefficacious, is frustrated. If you have resentment at the end, that means you've gone through a process of resentment. This is to clarify also, resentment doesn't always. Um, Resentment doesn't always come through resentment. You can have independent resentment, but we also measure it as an outcome of resentment very often. And then there's an affective driver um, function that it has. We find it in our work on reactionism, this desire to turn back towards um, sometimes an invented uh, world, rea the reactionary anti-stances comes with another interesting, very interesting social phenomenon, collective narcissism. And um, there are some colleagues at Kent, um, Alex Chikoka and a few others that are looking at this as, as uh, they're looking at collective narcissism in relation to anger. So we are talking about how it can link resentment better in the context of populist politics. So let, let us move forward a little. So I know I gave you a lot of information so this slide probably consolidates. Um, anger comes from appraisals or obstruction to a goal. Um, it is a response to a perceived injustice. It motivates us to act, resentment, chronic, compensatory. It involves this transvaluation. It has psychic defenses. It contains anger, envy, shame, um, inefficacious anger, envy, and shame. And it spits out resentment, resentment indignation, and, and hatred. So. This in a table format where you can see a little bit the differences between the two concepts. Anger is focused on injustice. If we go on this side of the screen here, sense of efficacy, because that always is expected with anger, action and it's temporary. Resentiment, the, the core of it is victimhood, inefficacy, passivity in action, because that, that inefficacy holds us back from feeling we have agency to change the situation, whereas with anger, we go forward to change it, and it's long-lasting. It's not temporary. It's a chronic condition. It's, in a way, important for us to keep that into account, because if it is a chronic condition, its implications for political outcomes is much more long-term and more significant than temporary anger responses to political stimuli, be it policies, issues, um, party positions, and so on. So. Um, told you a little bit about the measurement. Let's go a little further. So, how do we do this kind of work? It's not easy. So, I'm I'm 
as as uh, you might know about me, I was a trained experimentalist at Stony Brook. I do a lot of experiment surveys. I, I worked at the um, Stony Brook Political Psychology Survey Center that we had there as part of my postdoc, so highly trained in quantitative methods. And then now we have to go and investigate things that are a little bit deeper. So we thought, if we even do interviews, which, which I have been, or focus groups, it's difficult to get to this. Why don't we try to look at material that we have out there that already claim anger? Try to code for what is angry and what is resentment for. Let's see if we can tease them apart. So that's what we did. We thought, okay, in, we're very fortunate to all of us uh, have had access to really good books in the past 10 years that are dealing with anger. They identify their participants as angry. They also contain interviews. That was really important for us. So we wanted to find books by academics that uh, contain interviews with individuals, participants identified as angry. Individuals that self-identified as angry and were written by the academics as describing their anger. So the whole books, the, the books that we used were about anger. They had nothing to do with resentment. They didn't think of resentment. They didn't measure resentment. They didn't ask questions about resentment. So no bias there in trying to find the thing you're looking for. We had an environment in which we were going against the efforts of the original authors to find anger. So we were just, I think it's a hard test in that sense. So Angry White Men is one. Book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Arlie um, Hochschild's book uh, is the second one and Stift is the third. So what did we do there? We looked at, we read the books closely. When reading the books, we were taken aback by how much what we identified as resentment we thought we could read in those interviews, but then we thought, okay, our own insights don't matter here. Let's see if we can codify this. So we took, we looked at all the interview excerpts that were in those original books. And these are experts with middle class party activists, Trump supporters, a, a range of people that identify in those books as angry. And they are all in the US. So there's a little bit of a consistency in the sample. So what I'm telling you applies to the US right now. We have done different work that looks at the UK and other European countries, but that's not um, as part of this analysis. And all of them talk about the frustrations and their dissatisfactions and the, what they state, what they claim is their emotional state is anger, both by the, themselves and by the authors of the books. We found 164 excerpts that had elements of anger in them. So we're not searching for reason demand right now, we're looking for anger, right? 71 in the first book, 26 in the second, 67 in the third one. And these excerpts, we refer to them as statements and they're our unit of analysis. So these are interviews that were conducted, not by us, by the authors of the books. And they were assuming they were talking to angry people. The key variables that we coded for were aimed to differentiate, to, to identify anger, where it stands, and also identify resentment as clearly as we could, and then set them apart. So we know that anger is anger, rage, enraged, screwed. So implicit and explicit emotions that um, talk, talk about anger were codes for um, anger. 
We know Resentima from our other work has particular components, so victimhood, transvaluation, envy, powerlessness, injustice, and a sense of destiny. And we have done other work where we actually created a scale. You might be interested in that as well to use in your work. It's like a six-point scale for surveys that measures all these elements or components of Resentima. So you could see in a survey how it sits against anger proper. Um, we also had a challenging, but I think really stimulating and uh, worthwhile uh, task, struggle to identify defenses like projection, introjection. Projection is, you know, I'm not bad, you are. Introjection is you're so good and because I'm associated with you, I'm good as well. So I take in bits from outside splitting is the world is black and white denial facts you are familiar with reaction formation is i don't want this i hate it so it's that kind of thing reacting um uh that's that's not good it's bad that's yeah i'm not bad i'm good that's reaction formation just taking the opposite um, we also needed measures of e efficacy because we know efficacy and anger that go together efficacy low efficacy and reason go together we wanted activity because we know that resentima is inactive and, re and anger is active. Um, we also called it for different types of anger. We looked at anti-stances because in our theoretical framework, resentima fits well with anti-stances because it's the emotional mechanism of reactionism. And the more you see anti-stances, the more that screams reactionary orientations, be careful or be alert. And so we, had, we were looking for anti-stances I'm against feminism, I'm against government, against immigration, that's how we were coding these. And, and also nostalgia in the context of populist politics, resentima goes well with that. So what did we find? Now, these are, this is a qualitative content analysis. Um, we had intercoder reliability that we tried with three coders. So at the end, we were convinced that we were not, you know, subjectively coding things. There is some subjectivity in any coding, but at least we, we had some sense of reliability. And then we started seeing a lot of evidence of resentima in places where you would expect to see evidence of anger. So of the 164 statements that we were coding, incidents of anger proper were 84 counts, and we had 313 counts of resentima. Now you'll say, well, you use three four instruments for anger and six for resentima, of course you would expect to find more. That's not the comparison we're interested in. It's not more or less, that doesn't matter really. What matters is that there shouldn't be any evidence of resentima in places where anger is at work. You shouldn't see victimhood, right? You, should, you shouldn't see uh, powerlessness. The only thing that anger and resentima overlap one is injustice, that sense of injustice. And I'll show you the counts of that. They don't make up for 313. So what we were interested in here is why do we have these instances where traces of resentment come up in excerpts that are about anger or the authors and the people who feel that label it as anger. So immediately we started thinking, mm, maybe the labels don't matter very much. Let's look at the affective content, the emotional the content of these affective experiences and see what they actually are. So then we started comparing different kinds of statements. 
we looked at statements that had anger and no reason to mouth. These are 10 statements of the whole. Um, versus the statements that were high on resentima that had four and above elements of resentima in them. And we thought if we, and then we had other combinations as well, but for now, I'll talk to you about these because we thought these are the polar opposites. These are the purely angry statements with no resentima in them versus the highly resentimental statements that don't contain any, that, that, that are easily set apart. So, for comparison's sake, I'll show you some bits in a little bit. Breaking down what kind of things did we find that we didn't expect? We didn't expect to find victimhood, and it was there in 116 statements. We didn't expect to find envy or powerlessness or sense of destiny or transvaluation. Injustice was always supposed to be there, but it was only there 12 times. Some of them fit in the anger coding as well. So defenses. Defenses was a challenge for us because it's not difficult, easy. It's not easy for quantitative political psychologists to start thinking of psychoanalytic terms, of Kleinian and Freudian psychoanalysis, but it's worth exploring because that's what the mechanism employs. I think we have to, as I said before, stay true to the concepts and perhaps reach a little bit further beyond our comfort zone and read. So I've been reading a lot on psychoanalysis the past three years to get my head around this and proudly wrote an article uh, a year ago on the defenses of resentment, which is purely theoretical, but really enjoyable for me. Uh, and, and I had a real diversion or departure from the quantitative world I have been inhabiting. So defenses in 45 statements, 55 counts, so some statements were double loaded, a lot of projection, 35%, a lot of splitting, a lot of denial, some introjection and reaction formation. And they were higher in statements that also contained victimhood and envy. Makes sense. You see defenses more in places where you would also expect to have resentment. So let me show you a little bit some comparisons here. Uh, we are going to compare the high resentment statements with the no resentment statements. And what do we see here? We see inefficacy. Inefficacy was 75% mentioned in the high resentment statements. So people saying, I don't have agency, I cannot, I don't have power, I'm worthless, I don't mean anything. Right? So 75% in those statements versus 36 in the no resentment statements that mentioned efficacy, the flip side, there were no mentions of inefficacy in, in places where we identified anger. So theoretically, anger displays as we would expect. So the theory of anger that says that it comes with efficacy was reported. We didn't find statements of resentment with efficacy and we didn't find statements of anger with inefficacy. And we also saw that when there was inefficacy, there was destiny, victimhood, powerlessness, and envy. These are traces, reflections of resentment. We also found inaction. There was a lot of inaction in the statements altogether because I guess the interviewers were not probing to ask more about action. But in the high resentment statements, we had 75% inaction versus 61 in the angry ones. And again, more in destiny, transvaluation, and powerlessness statements. And we found action in anger um, when it related to injustice. Um, so that again shows us that the way we 
theorize and understand anger is correct. The problem is that we mislabel it when we see it out there in the real world. And anti-preferences, again, we found 69% uh, of the high resentment statements contained anti-preferences versus 46 of the anger. So would we have been writing about in the context of populist politics and anti-stances and anti-politics that these are angry, there is sentimentful context is even more anti than the angry one. So we are basically thinking at that point, as we're looking at this data, that this anger-focused interpretations of what is expressed in response to the satisfaction in grievance conceals resentment. We label it anger, we talk about it as if it is anger, but when, it look, when we look, when we dissect, open up its psychological components, it's not anger, it's closer to resentment. So this is the key contribution. I don't know, I had a slide with a, a, a table in the defenses. What happened? Did I jump it? Ah, here. Ah, I showed you this, right? So do, ah, I, I skipped this. Okay, these are the defenses. So this is what I was describing before, but now if you look a little bit here, you see a lot of defenses, most of them in splitting. This is a tally of these. Yeah? So most of them in splitting and in projection. So statements that contained splitting, the world is all bad. My party leader is all good. Yeah, that's splitting. You don't see ambivalent positions within the things you talk about. Projection, they are bad, we are good. Yeah, we are good, they are all bad. So projecting all your bits, the, your bad bits out. Denial, um, and denial is really important in the context of fake news and um, alternate realities that we, we live in. Introjection, not as much, but still then reaction formation as well. Um, and here you see the different kind of defenses, uh, the, how different elements of reason play out in defenses. And what you see here is the prevalent uh, role of victimhood, envy, and powerlessness. Um, that are here, that are key elements of resentment. So a lot of defenses when we found in text traces of victimhood, envy, and powerlessness um, point to defenses being employed in the context of resentment. So here we are. This is the contribution of the paper. We are thinking that we need to be thinking a little bit more about what anger is and what anger does to us. What we see uh, in those books that we analyze, this is this repressed aggression, which is not angry, it's resentmentful, it's not short-lived, it's long-term. And we want to think a little bit more about this in the context of grievance politics. We want to think a little bit about how it links to perceptions of victimhood, low efficacy, and backward values that constitute this framework of reactionism. Um, that we have identified in our populist contemporary politics. And another thing that we thought was good about this paper is that we were able to make use of uh, secondary data interview excerpts. There is a lot of material out there that many colleagues collect. They code it for their own purpose, for their own research, and then they put it aside. Nobody uses it. Nobody has any value for it. What we were able to do here is look at these interview excerpts 
um, that were available to us and code them for systematically code them for evidence of, of uh, what they were collected for, but also the concept that we were um, coding against. Um, we used this novel measure of resentiment that I briefly told you about with the six components, ask me about it. And we took a little bit of a dive, I think, to, to look a little deeper in defense mechanisms and how transvaluation, not runs valuation, has uh, been delivered, the change of values. So the so what point? I think, and those of you that know me know how much this matters to me, I think we need to look at the psychology of the political phenomena that we are studying. We are political behavior scholars look at the outcomes. Political psychologists look at the process uh, of political decisions. If we are not true to our theoretical training and we don't see concepts out there as what they're expected to be, I think we are doing a, a disjustice to our academy and, and also to the world around us because we mislabel things. So I'm really very conscious of that. Um, trying to think how we understand anger in the context of populist politics um, matters. And thinking about the political implications also matters because anger and resentment have different outcomes, different societal outcomes. So this fits in a broader, again, debate when I gave my um, presidential address at ISPT in uh, Athens, some of you might have been there, on democracy as an achievement, I uh, was really interested in understanding how we can realize our understanding of the world by carefully recognizing conflict within us and external conflict. I think conflict and the emotions that drive it, like anger, are really, really important in helping us come to terms with that conflict and having ways to find cross-social ways to address it. Um, if we think we are angry, but instead we are resentful, we cannot realize our false sense of victimhood. We cannot realize our vindictiveness, our hatred, our antisocial stances against others. We see them as our entitlement. And I think the closer we come to labeling the things we feel as appropriately and true to their psychological contents, the closer we'll be to understanding them and managing them. So that's the end of the talk. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Teresa, and I'm, I'm really happy to uh, to see this presentation now because I unfortunately had to miss your uh, presidential address in in Athens, and uh, actually I think very few of us were there for a variety of reasons. Remember, you Christian were unable to fly to Athens uh, because of uh, flight cancellations. So it's uh, great to, to hear this is a really interesting uh, story. Uh, we now have some time for questions. Uh, also for the people online, the people online can type their questions into the Q&A. Uh, and while they do so, I look around the room and I see an immediate question like that. Oh. Yes, go ahead. Uh, thank you very much. It was, <clears throat> it was really interesting. My question taps into emotion regulation, I would say. But based on what you said, I feel that the difference between resentment and response 
is mostly that there is shame that is transformed to anger either successfully 